You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I've been reading this book um, by Clotaire Rapai, who is as French uh, as his name sounds, and he's like the, the greatest marketing wizard of all time. Um, if you bought something this week, it was probably because of him um, planting the idea in your mind. And, uh, and he's written a book. Uh, it's been around for a while now, but it's, um, it's uh, all about how to get people to buy your stuff, essentially. And um, he's a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and he kind of worms his way into our brains in order to sell stuff to us, or at least does that through the uh, companies that pay him millions of dollars for his secrets. And anyway, it was an interesting part of the book where he was talking about slogans, and just the power of slogans just kind of uh, grab our attention. And he, he kind of references uh, Red Bull, which, as we know, will give us wings. And Nike, you know, just do it, kind of taps into our desire to be heroes and champions and conquerors of the world. And I don't know, he lists a bunch of other ones. But it got me thinking about slogans and kind of what... If you were able to devise a slogan for yourself, what would it be? What would you want to be kind of the grab statement that, you know, in a sentence would sell you to the people around you? We do this with our uh, states, right? All of our states have slogans. And, um, and so, uh, you know, New South Wales, um, just like New South Wales, very boring, stuck in the past. Their slogan is, that was a joke, by the way. You can, ah, oh, there we go. Uh, the first state, the first state, all right? Very, very statement of historical fact. They were the first state, all right? And, and then you've got Melbourne, very much the other direction, you know, trying to, um, to uh, I don't know, contrast itself to its older brother, Victoria. We are on the move. Where exactly, we're not sure. Um, towards totalitarianism, according to some people. Uh, <laughs> Um, what about New- oh, Queensland? They're a little bit more creative, a little bit more romantic. Beautiful one day, perfect the next. I like that. Um, it's blatant false advertising, but it kind of, you know, slogans don't have to be true, they just have to grab you. Uh, the Americans do this way better than us um, because Americans love slogans. Americans believe in slogans. And so the American states have kind of much better slogans than us. Um, The great state of Alabama, sweet home Alabama. I like that. It's nice. It's comforting. It kind of wants me to make my home. It makes me want to make my home in sweet home Alabama. Alaska is even better. state that I would very much love to visit one day. Um, Alaska's is uh, beyond your dreams within your reach. Oh, that's good. Beyond your dreams, within your reach. Uh, Idaho. (laughs) Not not as creative, not as artistic, um, not as evocative. Theirs is famous potatoes. (laughs) But the best one of all, without a question, 
is New Hampshire. You know it? What, what is it? Yeah, live free or die. That's the greatest slogan of all time. Live free or die. I've got a slogan for us, for those of us who call Red Door home. If you, uh, if you call this church your church, and if you find yourself kind of clicking with the values of this church, then you'll love this slogan. It's verse 1 of Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. That's a good slogan. Not to us. Not to us. But to your name give glory. Why? Why would we give God all of the glory? Why would we stop it? from falling on us and rather deflect it back to the Lord. Why? Because of your faithful love. Because of your truth. That's worth making a slogan about. You know, when it comes to love and truth, most of us as human beings tend towards one or the other. They tend to be dichotomized and normally it kind of runs along, you know, personality lines. Some of us are given more to love. We're accepting, not judgmental. We, uh, you know, seek the good of others. Um, but because we tend towards love rather than truth, we tend to lack a lot of backbone. We tend to find it difficult to draw lines in the sand to construct boundaries around things that ought to be protected and conserved. Those of us who tend towards truth are great at standing for sound doctrine and for justice and righteousness. But we suffer from a lack of empathy and compassion. All of us in this room fall off like the, the drunken peasant on the donkey, we fall off one side or the other and we fail as a result. But not God. God is full of both. He has both of those great things, love and truth, in fullness. Remember what John said about Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 14? He said the word, that is that power that the Greeks believed in, that great logos that governs the whole universe, John, in speaking to these Greeks, says, that logos, that word that you believe in, that holds everything together, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. He says, I was, I was one of his best friends. We saw him. We saw his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full, like brimming, overflowing, full of grace and truth. 
we tend towards one or the other. Jesus, as God in human flesh, full of grace and truth. You see this in his life. Remember that series we did, um, Meals with Jesus? where we just saw in Jesus, in the meals that Jesus has, you look throughout the book of, of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. Like Luke is just loves the, the table ministry of Jesus. And at that table ministry, you see over and over again, Jesus full of grace and truth. He sits down with tax collectors and sinners, those who have been ostracized and kept out of the assembly of God's people, and while he's sitting with them, he speaks truth to them. He's both. You see this not only as he's sitting at the table with people, but you see it most clearly demonstrated as he dies on the cross. You have this coming together of love and truth, grace and truth. The old saying of the Puritans was that on the cross... Justice and mercy kiss. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross of Christ. You have God's justice, his wrath, his truth, right? His righteousness. And you have his love and grace and mercy. That's the God whom we worship. And it's because of those Attributes in full, grace and truth, love and truth, mercy and justice. It's because those things come together in their fullness that we, with the psalmist, say, not to us, not to us, not to us. It's not about us. It's not for us. The glory is for you because of your faithful love and truth. Yesterday I had this like one of many disastrous days as a daddy. It was a, it was a disciplinary disaster from the start of the day to the finish. I wanted Judah to do something with me. Uh, he's got a little pet turtle. We needed to uh, go and find some stuff to feed that turtle in one of the many waterways in Caroline Springs. We do this regularly. He just refused to do it. I mean, he just refused to do it. It was the first time I'd seen this in him, with him just flexing his autonomy. Uh, it felt a little bit like how God feels when he deals with us every minute of every day. And uh, I got frustrated really quickly and um, threw the book at him. Uh, not literally. I mean, like, you know, I disciplined him. I saw Raph when I was out getting the stuff myself without him and felt a little bit weird about that. Um, I had to explain that I was doing it because Judah was being disciplined. I, I moved on to India in the afternoon. She was just flat out refusing to do what I was telling her to do. There's a pattern here. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do. I don't know if you've been a parent and the kid's not doing what you're telling them to do and you've made all kinds of threats about disciplinary consequences and that doesn't change anything. So what are you left with? This is why parents used to hit their kids, right? It's just like, that's all I've got left. Don't want to make light of that. But that's the feeling you have. It's like, I'm powerless. So I ended up like telling her that she couldn't come to her cousin's birthday party that we're going to later in the day, knowing full well that I wasn't actually going to follow through with that threat. 
which just undermined my authority all the more. All right, it was a disaster, is what I'm trying to tell you. And the reason it's a disaster because I'm incomplete in my capacity to express either love or truth, justice or mercy. God is not in any way deficient. He's full of love. He's full of truth. And this is why the psalmist gets so upset when he considers the nations around him, when he considers the people around him, not just outside of Israel but within it, those people who denigrate God, those people who, <clears throat> who uh, mock him, those people who doubt his goodness or his greatness, who doubt his love or his power. I was listening to a podcast just yesterday where, like, the whole podcast, I really like this podcast, but the whole podcast was spent just mocking the Christian God, just, just like, destroying, decimating, dissembling, deconstructing the Christian God without reply, like, without reference to anyone who believed in just... It was just a, a free-for-all. And I got a little bit agitated. But I had to ask myself, am I agitated because these guys are making fun of my team? Or am I agitated because these guys don't know the love of God? Those two things are very different. One is driven by tribalism. The other is driven by love for people who don't yet know God. The psalmist hears the mockery of the people around him and he's, he's outraged and, and what he goes to is satire. So he says, verse 2 and 3, he says, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Right? These nations are saying, God doesn't exist. The God of Israel doesn't exist. Where is he? Can't see him. And his response is, where is our God? He's in heaven. That's where he is. Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. His response is to say, our God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's enthroned in heaven. He's ruling and reigning over all things, including the people who mock him. That's our God. That's Yahweh. Now, if that's true about our God, that he does whatever he pleases, that's a dangerous God to deal with. Right? That could go really bad. If it's true that there is one God who cannot be contested with, if there is one God who is supreme over all things, right, all peoples, all universes, all times and places, all other gods, he is ruling and reigning supreme, then that's a dangerous situation for us to be in because what if he's, I don't know, the kind of God who enjoys torturing people? What if he's like the Greek gods? You know, they just had fun with people. Like we're bored, just, I don't know, kill those people. 
Make that guy push a boulder up a hill for eternity. <laughs> right? What if he's like that? What if he's capricious? What if, he's, what if he's, his motives are arbitrary? What if he doesn't care about us? That's a dangerous God to deal with. He does whatever he pleases. That sounds like a threat to some people. Well, it is a threat. And we are vulnerable unless that first verse is true. Unless that sovereign God is full of love and truth. If he's full of love and truth, then his being able to do whatever he pleases is actually profoundly comforting. It's a safe place to be living in the world where that kind of God is sovereign over all things. God is both sovereign and loving. He's both great and good. See that? He's both great and good. Now, that's unlike the gods of the nations that the psalmist is speaking to here. So the the next few verses, he says, Their idols, the idols of these people who are mocking God, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. This is ancient satire. You're supposed to laugh at this. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. So you see what he's doing? He's contrasting the God of Israel with these idols, these gods fashioned by human hands. And in contrast to the sovereign Lord, who not only rules and reigns over all things, but speaks and reveals himself to his people, these idols, though they have mouths, can't speak. They're powerless. Me and the fam went to uh, the Indian restaurant just down here uh, recently. We love Indian food. It's so good. And they make good Indian food down there. Uh, They also have idols all over the place down there. Here's a picture of the uh, one that had my kids freaked out most. And... uh, (laughs) I noticed that, like, for the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of the meal, they hadn't said anything about it, but they just kept staring at this thing. Uh, and eventually, when the waiter came by, India, my eldest, said, what is that? And uh, he said, that is our God. And so there, from there on ensued this conversation about you know, other gods. And my kids are like the only white kids at their school, right? So they've interacted with lots of different cultures and religions, and it's really cool. They have a very good grasp on world religions. And the conversation was very um, respectful, as we always want it to be, about other people's faiths and beliefs and so on. But they couldn't get away from the fact 
that that thing was the God, right? Like, how is that the God? Seems a little bit impotent. That's what's on the psalmist's mind as he lists off this litany of deficiencies in the gods of the nations around Israel. They're deficient in all the most important ways. There is no sovereign Lord of these nations. They're all bowing down to stuff they made themselves. Now, at one level, this is kind of easy to pick on. Like, making fun of stuff that people made and then bow down to is pretty easy to pick on. But what about our idols? What about the idols of Western materialism? Not so easy for us to see. We've all grown up worshipping them. And so like the people of certain Eastern religions, they sort of just assume that these gods are gods and of course you're going to bow down to them. We do the very same thing with ours. We can mock that other cultures bow down to things made by human hands and then spend the rest of the day doing this. Like with religious fervour. Every ping, every notification is a call to worship, just like the great bells of the ancient religions. In both cases, whatever the idol is, whether it's the the uh, the uh, shrines that you find in many of the homes around us here in Caroline Springs, or it's the Western materialistic idols of devices or family or money or status or identity or I don't know. In all of these cases, the same is true of all of them. They're all impotent. They're all deficient. They're all powerless. That's his point. They have eyes but cannot see. Mouths but cannot speak. Feet but cannot walk. The same is true of all of these things. They're all unable, inept. They can't deliver on their promises. Do you know that? Like, have you, have you actually acknowledged that to yourself? Like, I don't, I don't mean about, like, just this sort of abstract assent to the thing that the guy up the front is saying. I mean, like, have you acknowledged in your soul that that new phone isn't going to be able to make you happy? Or, God forbid, we speak against the real sacred cow of our own time, the family. Like, have you actually acknowledged in your heart, my wife cannot complete me, despite what Tom Cruise told us? Did he tell us that? One of those guys. It's one of those romantic comedies. I don't know. Another person can't complete us. My precious children, even when they're not disobeying me, even when they're on their best behaviour, cannot fulfil me. They're inept. 
They're deficient. They're powerless. And so he says, instead, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You have Israel, God's chosen people, implored to trust in the Lord. It's not enough that you've been chosen. This is something you need to decide every day. Today I'm going to trust in the Lord. You have the, the house of Aaron, these priests. It's not enough to be a priest it's not enough to wear a collar. It's not enough to be professionally religious. You need to every day trust in the Lord. It's, a, it's an active decision of the will. And those who fear the Lord, it's not enough just to fear the Lord, to be a God-fearer, to be a good old-fashioned Christian, right? To be a nice person. It's not enough. You must trust in the Lord. Not at this time, but in the New Testament era, Gentiles who came to trust in Yahweh through Jesus would be called God-fearers. And so that as they read this psalm, they found their own place in it, just as we ought to find our own place in it. This is an invitation to all people. Trust in the Lord. So the question for each one of us this morning The universal question, irrespective of how long you've been a Christian or if you're a Christian, the question for us is, do you know this God of love and truth? Not just in an abstract sort of God-fearing kind of way, but do you trust him? Have you cultivated enough of a relationship with him where there, there, there is deep and profound trust in his goodness and love? Have you accepted his son's death on the cross where justice and mercy kiss? Have you received his gift of life? That's how the psalmist ends this. He says in verse 17 and 18, It is not the dead who praise the Lord, nor any of those descending into the silence of death, but we will bless the Lord both now and forever. Hallelujah. It's now and it's forever. That's the promise that Jesus extends to us. That's the invitation that all who trust in him would receive that gift. The gift that enables us to praise and trust him both now and forever. That's John 3.16, right? John 3.16 is just sort of like a restatement of this whole thing. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The reception of that gift is what enables us to say we will bless the Lord both now and forever. 
Now, it might be that you have, over the years, been inoculated to hearing that John 3.16 extension of grace. You might be inoculated against it. You know what I mean? Like you've been vaccinated against it. You hear it and it does nothing for you. It's possible. It's tragic beyond reckoning, but it's possible. And so all I'm going to do now is pray While we leave that up on the screen, I'm going to pray that that lands on you. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time in a long time. But that astonishing offer would be made real to you right now. And that you might have the courage to receive it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are both great and good. You are love and truth. You are mercy and justice. And because of all of this, we can trust you. It's hard to trust people because they're not those things and they disappoint us and they scare us. And they build up our hopes and then those hopes fade over time. But you, Lord, are ultimately worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship, worthy of our love. So I pray now, Lord, for each person in this room and those who are joining us online, that that beautiful, brilliant invitation from Jesus, that trusting in him and his death on our behalf, that in that we might receive life eternal, never-ending life, new creation, restoration. I pray that each one of us here this morning, irrespective of where we've come from and how long we've been doing this, Lord, that this morning, once again, we would receive it. Open hands, bringing nothing to the table, offering nothing in return, but simply receiving your gracious, unmerited gift. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.